0: You're listening to The Real Well Show with Kathy Fetke, the real estate investor's resource.
1: In this episode of The Real Well Show, you'll hear an amazing story of a 12-year-old boy who wanted to upgrade his family's home. So he called a real estate agent and told him he wanted to buy a house. Well, he was able to help his family buy a house and put them on a path to financial freedom. And today he's helping many others do the same. I'm Kathy Fedke, and welcome to The Real Wealth Show. Our guest today, Larry Taylor, has been a real estate investor for more than four decades. He's now the CEO of a Malibu-based investing company called Christina, which focuses on the West Side region of Los Angeles. In today's show, he shares his personal story in this interview, along with his experience as an investor who's lived through various political and economic cycles, and can explain how they relate to investor concerns today. Concerns like inflation, Asset values, rent growth, where people want to live and work, and finding a good deal as an investor. So, Larry, welcome to the Real Wealth Show. It's just great to have you here.
2: I know. I'm I'm thrilled to be here. I know it's taken us a while to uh, coordinate this morning. I mean today, but I'm glad we can do it before uh, before the holiday.
0: Yeah, likewise. Uh, So you. I've always loved having experienced real estate investors on the show because you bring decades of experience, which is uh, important because so many people getting into the business have only experienced one cycle. And that's been a pretty robust one. You know, I know a lot of people who've made a lot of money in just the past five years and consider themselves experts. So I would love to hear uh, just like when when did you get started uh, acquiring real estate?
2: Well, I have a very interesting story because I did start at a very young age, uh, probably, you know, before I was 13 years old, so, uh, and help. Wow. me. Oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah. Now, when I was very young, um, I moved to Los Angeles from the East Coast with my family, so I grew up in a, in a home in, uh, in Pennsylvania and came to Los Angeles with uh, a couple of older sisters and squeezed into a two-bedroom, one-bath apartment in what is now West Hollywood. Uh, and I didn't quite understand the whole concept. It was almost like, uh, well, where I came from, only four people lived in places like that. So, um, and I was bound and determined to uh, not have to wait until my sisters were done with the bathroom so I could go. Uh, and I just called up a realtor. I think I was 11. Uh, maybe twelve, and uh, said, um, "I want to buy a house." And um, that really, uh, I got, I met this fellow in 1966, um, uh, who drove me around in his brand new Oldsmobile Tornado and we were looking at um, houses for sale uh, in the general area of what is now known as the Grove, where the Farmers Market is. Uh, and uh, he started quizzing me as to what type of house I was looking for and why. And I explained I was living in an apartment building and I I didn't think that was appropriate for what I wanted. Um, And he said, well, not all apartment buildings are bad. You know, Um, you can buy an apartment building that has a large three bedroom, three bath owner's unit. Um, And then, you know, you have a bunch of other people that'll pay rent to you and you can use that money to, you know, live for free. And I was very intrigued at that age. And uh, and that's exactly what my first real estate transaction was. Uh, I moved my family from being a renter in an apartment building to being uh, the owner of an apartment building, where in fact, we did have the equivalent of a three bedroom, three bath home inside an apartment building with another nine Tenants that were paying the rent, which was then used to pay the loan. And that was another kind of an awareness that, wow, you can actually buy property, borrow the money for the purchase of the property from a bank, and then have tenants pay the loan back. Like, where where in the world, I mean, this can't be that you can actually borrow the money and have somebody else pay for it. I mean, it's
0: truly amazing, but I I have to go back to this real estate agent and you, and so a real estate broker was taking you around when you were eleven.
2: I think I was twelve.
0: Well, okay, okay, but that what was was this sort of just an educational thing, or did he think you could actually perform?
2: Well, I was pretty tall. I'm six foot four, and and I looked a lot older, and I and I matured in the East Coast, and so. I grew up in a small, rough and tumble town that was a combination of Italian Catholics and uh, some Irish and, you know, street gangs and uh, a bunch of unemployed coal miners. I mean, it was rough and tumble. And I came out here and met kids my age, and they were like infants, (laughs) you know. And uh, I'd already gotten beat up enough times to know what it felt like. And I already beat up enough people to know what it felt like. And then I came here and and these kids were like children, I mean, like real babies. And, and, uh, you know, I guess when you grow up in a rough and tumble, kind of a scrabble sort of way, you mature in ways that others don't. And I was pretty mature at my age and I knew what I wanted. And the guy actually had no issues. I remember him like it was yesterday, Jim Greenspan. And, uh, you know, we had a very interesting conversation and, and, you know, and they say, "Well, how did you get that?" Well, I did have to have my father co-sign on the loan documents, but because um, I was not, I was a minor. But um, I negotiated <laughs> that entire transaction.
0: <laughs> okay, I've interviewed many, many, many people over, you know, uh, 17 years now, and and this is a first. This is a great story. Oh my goodness. Okay, so you got your dad to uh, sign on the loan. What about the down payment?
2: $3,300 was about two thirds of their savings.
0: So they put up the down payment and put up the loan and you negotiated the deal. Yeah. And did you get a part of ownership?
2: Oh, no, it was all family. You know, no, I wasn't even thinking about it. All I know is that I raised the quality of my family's living experience. And from there, uh, that. I sold that at a profit a year and four months later and then bought our first single family home. Wow. With the profits.
0: Unbelievable. Okay, so uh and that went that went to your parents, I assume.
2: Or did yeah. you- well I negotiated that one too, and the purchase price of that house was $29,250, and that was enough profit from the apartment building to buy the house.
0: That's incredible. Wow.
2: And then we lived for free in a house that would now sell for about $2.4 million today.
0: Real estate. But uh, inflation is transitory, right?
2: <laughs> um, I don't think it's transitory because in 2009, the Dow Jones Industrial Average was 6600 having come down in the... In the Great Depression, Great Recession since the Great Depression, but when you have a a Dow Jones Industrial Average go to thirty-five or thirty-six thousand, you have stock prices, you know, achieving such incredible numbers. Is that really related to the value of those companies, or isn't that in and of itself inflation? Because as those prices go up and those shares get sold, and that cash goes into the economy. In my view, inflation has been with us continually, uh, you know, since the end of World War II, whether it's been more or less. It just depends on how the government calculates inflation. When they separate out, you know, energy, food, so on and so forth, just to achieve a number that we can all agree on. But remember, inflation is like a little bit like uh, drugs, you know, drugs. a little bit of cocaine is okay, too much of it might hurt you. And if we like inflation, it's like we like to know that something that we bought yesterday is today worth more than we paid for it. What we don't like to know is that it's worth less. We don't want to buy a stock at $40 a share and see a trading at 32. We don't want to buy a house and say we paid, you know, whatever price we paid and find out two years later, it's worth less. Not that it means anything if you're going to continue to live there, or not that it means anything if you're going to continue to own the stock or whatever, but it feels good to know that something that you bought is worth more later.
0: Yes. That's where
2: I think inflation psychologically is good. Um, as to these words that the Fed is using now, and the government's talking about transitory because of shortage of goods and the shortage of employees and so on and so forth. You know, it's basically supply, demand, greed, all combined. Uh, because, you know, in the world of economics, you know, it's all about making a profit. And any way anybody can make a profit is what historically happens. So if shippers can charge double to carry a load, they will. If it can be borne by the, the customer. But what we've seen in the early stage of the pandemic in March, April 2020, oil actually traded below zero because there was no, you know, momentarily, there was thought to be no demand for oil because the world's economy had grown to a halt. So, you know, it's all, it's all relative. And so, you know, inflation uh, really starts to become a problem when the masses believe that if they don't buy today, what they want to buy, it'll cost them more tomorrow. Mm-hmm. That's the bad inflation. Yes. But how could you not have inflation when the world's economies have printed trillions of dollars without without any plan whatsoever to ever somehow repay that? Just yeah, it
0: seems, seems impossible to repay. And, and that seems to be a problem that nobody wants to discuss because nobody knows how to get out of it. Uh, but I, I'm only joking because I think the fed stopped saying that it's transitory because, and now, now the new, uh, I guess story is, uh, oh, but inflation's good. You know, inflation's good, Well, it's good if you own assets, right? It's good if you own real estate and stocks, it's really not good. If you are, um, struggling day to day to just make, uh, yeah. pay for the cost of things today. And and when the prices go up, like you said, people do panic. Uh, I think but,
2: you know, yeah. but yes, but you're getting down granularly to you know people that have to work hard, to take home their net paycheck and put food on the table and feed their children. and that's a real concern always when you when you get into the area of cost of goods and services. but what people probably don't focus on at least you know the masses, but certainly those of us who are you know, involved a lot in the higher levels of economics of businesses that, uh, Bernanke taking the control of the Fed after Greenspan, he came to he came to that office with a different background. And his thesis uh, for his doctoral dissertation uh, was totally based upon his study of the Great Depression. And his thesis was that if the U.S. government had bailed out the banks and actually not allowed depositors to lose their money there would have been no Great Depression. And so when the 2009 crisis expanded from just two Bear Stearns real estate funds crashing to the broader economy, his greater concern became avoiding the depression by flooding the banks with money and flooding the capital into the system, lowering the cost of money to zero to be able to avoid what he felt was the trigger for the Great Depression. And essentially his fear and the fear of other uh, G7 bankers and G20 uh, countries was deflation, not inflation. And so the the Fed target of the 2% inflation was far different from the Greenspan era or the Volcker era, which was zero inflation. We want 2% inflation because the fear of deflation was out greater than the fear of inflation, because it's deflation which causes depression, not inflation. Mm-hmm. And so, the Fed, up until the uh, pandemic, was very focused on not allowing us to slip into Japan style deflation, where Japan has de- been deflating for more than 20 years. In fact, we have Japanese investors who don't even understand, okay, what what we're trying to do here because they've never experienced inflation all they've ever experienced. They're young. They've only experienced that things are costing less and less and wow. values are decreasing. Mm. And then when you look at the cost of money worldwide as compared to us, we have countries that are still at negative rates. I mean, mm. I have to pay my banks in Europe to keep my money they charge me to keep the money in the bank. It's amazing. So yeah. it's, a, it's a different world and it's, it's challenging for any, you know, average investor to be able to really, really understand the macro and how the macro affects the micro and it affects them.
0: Yeah. What we, what we do see is uh, a fear that home prices will continue to rise and that real estate costs will continue to go up and, it's uh, causing people to, you know, buy, buy buy, pay more than they might have, yeah, certainly more than they would have last year. Uh, yeah, so um, but the opposite would be if you thought that the prices were going to go down, then you would keep waiting. So yeah, you're right. Deflation uh, would certainly slow down an economy. You're just going to wait and wait till prices go down, just like with electronics. You know, I, I wait as long as I can before I get a new laptop because I know even one month could make a difference. <laughs> right. But not in housing right now. Okay, was the, let's go back to this fascinating story of you um, looking older than your age, being taller than people your age, being uh, more um, experienced and maybe more mature and helping your your family acquire a multifamily uh, that I assume they could live there for free. You got the owner's unit and you could rent out the rest and that covered the costs. Yeah. More than covered the cost. Very effective. Yeah, created income. I still suggest that for people today you know if if at all possible get a get a fourplex get an fha loan three and a half percent down get a fourplex rent the other room you know the other units out and live in the one you know for free uh it's it's still a model that works today and um certainly in, in multifamily if you can find them um then you were able to take the proceeds buy a house i imagine at that point you were pretty addicted what was next
2: well i mean you know yeah You learn these principles that number one, there exists such a thing as uh, uh, mortgages, which was kind of foreign to me, and that there exists this concept that you could buy income producing property that would allow you to use other people's money to pay back the debt that you borrow to buy property. I think that was probably somewhere floating around in the brain as a young man, but um, I started to go on and and uh, finish high school and get myself to college by the time I was 15. And I was very fortunate. I came from a very humble background and uh, was not in a situation where my parents could ever afford to pay for uh, any kind of a high-level college education. But I was very entrepreneurial in every imaginable way to be able to earn enough money to be able to lift my parents out of what I call poverty as compared to what their friends were living like in Los Angeles because they, they were foreign, they were Europeans and they immigrated to the United States in the early 50s but their friends that had immigrated to Los Angeles in the late 40s uh, just after World War II they came here and invested money early on and became super wealthy by the time we arrived in Los Angeles, in 1964. So I just felt we were, I didn't think we were poor in Pennsylvania, but everybody was poor. <laughs> but, but when we got, I thought we were wealthy compared to the unemployed coal miners, but oh, yeah. uh, my dad was a humble tailor and really was working in Los Angeles for $80 a week. And, and I was just bound and determined to raise the quality of life. And I was very fortunate that I was a very capable student. I wouldn't say I was, you know, uh, a Rhodes Scholar in high school. Uh, But I was working on a multitude of different, you know, entrepreneurial things that uh, would put our money and uh, would manage to get out of college. I mean, get out of high school at a very young age. I was in college uh, just before I turned 16. Um, And in college, uh, I tested very high on my entry scores into into, uh, public schools, I mean, uh, public college. And uh, from there, I won a scholarship to USC, a full university scholarship. Uh, I was an accounting student and I was introduced to professors who wrote the books that I was studying uh, met the dean, met the assistant dean, met certain people, made, made relationships. And, uh, you know, from there, my interest in real estate was really, you know, even more inspired by some of the people that I met. Uh, I met the, the son of the founder of Imperial Bank, which was one of the largest banks in California at the time, uh, who happened to be living in Malibu, whose bank happened to finance Most of the developers that bought lots of Malibu country estates next to Pepperdine University. And so it's just kind of, it worked its way from there. But um, even though I was a scholarship student to SC through the School of Accounting, um, I started finding all these real estate classes that you could take at USC, finance, appraisal, real estate investments, where they talk about real estate. And I, I was just, voracious in terms of my pursuit of all these things and uh really i just uh you know i, I formed my first real estate company when i was a junior at u.s.c wow <laughs> that was the ni- 1973 right after the passage of the 72 coastal act and after i met george elton she was the founder of imperial bank and he was trying to get me to buy Some of these foreclosed lots at the uh, Malibu Country Estates, and they they were going to sell me a 5,000, 7,000 square foot postage stamp for 17,000. But I could buy an acre of land in in Malibu for 10,000, as long as I had a coastal permit. So I just went out and figured out how to get coastal permits, and and I learned how to turn 10,000 into 35,000, and that worked really well.
0: Oh, boy, I bet you wish you held on to all of it.
2: Well, I can tell you, as I've told every one of our investors over the years, that if I could, I can't buy one property back that I sold for what I sold for, what I sold it for, not one. So you're right. Why would you ever sell anything? Which is the whole premise for our Christina Real Estate investors is buy good property, hold it forever. It will reward you in ways that no other investment can.
0: You know, that's so interesting because we haven't focused much on, on California for several reasons. One, the landlord laws tend to be more tenant friendly. Uh, it's uh, The the rent ratios are not as good as other places. In other words, uh, a lot of people are selling their million dollar properties here and able to, to exchange and double, triple, even quadruple their cash flow. So we haven't been very bullish on California, although I live here and and uh and we do see the power of of short-term rentals for sure um but yeah i mean have you can you mentioned when we started this interview that this is the best place in the world to invest meaning california so tell me more about that because a lot of people would say oh, i don't know i mean the cash flows are lower than other places
2: well i don't have much of the knowledge of California. Um... Frankly, I'm only interested in the West side of Los Angeles.
0: Okay. Very targeted.
2: Uh, great real estate, I mean, good real estate gets better and great real estate is always in demand. And I'm only focused and I've only ever been focused on the West side of Los Angeles because the greatest fortunes in real estate are made by those who highly concentrate their investments in a geographical area because they can, that area has certain you know, characteristics that make it valuable. Um, so if you sold your house in Los Angeles for $2 million, you bought, you know, 140 units in Kentucky, they're probably flat right now.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: I mean, you know, you want hurricanes, you want tornadoes, you want shitty weather, you want to freeze your ass off in the winter, go ahead and move. But we have the best year-round climate in the United States, if not the world, and we have the most in-demand uh, economy of anywhere in the United States year-round. We're the the center of entertainment, center of technology. We have the two most significant ports um, in the world, in the United States, actually, that service the Far East. Everything comes through the Port of Long Beach, Port of Los Angeles. Um, And the supply-demand imbalance here has been consistent for the last nearly five decades that I've been involved in this industry and it's never changed And now versus where I was 45, 50 years ago when there was vacant land. There is no vacant land. So we're like the island of Manhattan where if you want to build something new, you have to buy something and tear it down, which makes your entry level cost higher, which makes your end product uh, more expensive. And it doesn't really matter because the demand so exceeds the supply no matter what. Values can only continue to go up. And so when you're investing in real estate, you know, there's a lot of factors to consider. And there's a lot of good areas in the United States that are worthy of investment. And there's a lot of good product types that are worthy of investment. But the question becomes is, what's your investment strategy and what's your investment, you know, objective? Mm-hmm. And if Your objective is to preserve and grow your wealth in a tax-deferred manner, in an area where your downside risk is mitigated, never extinguished it, but you'll mitigate it, then there is nowhere else to invest. Mm-hmm. There really just isn't. I mean, there's nothing that compares to this. There's nothing in the country that compares to this. I don't care if you could move to Texas and not pay state tax. If you're a real estate investor with depreciation, amortization, you're not paying anybody any tax. So it doesn't really matter. Um, and if you think the climate is better anywhere else in the country, then you need a psychiatrist.
0: <laughs> All right. What about earthquakes?
2: They're a lot less frequent than tornadoes, hurricanes, and snowstorms and windstorms. Snow wind but um, yes, we do live in earthquake country. They are unpredictable. And we have learned how to build better buildings to be able to withstand those forces because we really do understand what happens in a seismic event and how a building can be designed to meet that. And so as I look at the entire west side, about 90% of it will be rebuilt in the next 50 years, which creates an even greater opportunity to invest because buildings will need to be replaced to be able to be more structurally sound and to be able to compete in an area where the demand will never exceed the supply. But, and there is such a thing as earthquake insurance, uh, which traditionally we've purchased and we wouldn't think of not purchasing it if to the, if and to the extent it was available.
0: Okay. That's, that's good to know. Uh, Global warming, any concerns there?
2: Well, I live on the ocean. So the, I've watched the beaches erode, I've watched the, the wave patterns change, and I've watched the tides change, and um, I, don't, I don't think that you can poo-poo global warming, um, but the climate will always change, and you know, based upon the emissions that we put out and the amount of methane that's out there and so on and so forth, I think the world has come to the realization that we could do a better job of mm-hmm. preventing the release of things into the atmosphere that are bad, but the climate has been changing long before humans were probably on the planet, so I think that you know the evolution of that um, will change as the awareness grows, but I'm not overly concerned about it, because I don't think the phenomena mm-hmm. we see necessarily is attributed to man-made climate change. I just think climate changes there's a big universe and we're just a little zit in the overall planets uh in the overall galaxy
0: yeah right galaxy within galaxies and yes we're just a speck.
2: we're just a spec <laughs> True.
0: Uh, okay um so you've been through different cycles real estate cycles and uh you know the the ups and the downs and you've probably owned real estate throughout all of those what are some of the lessons you've learned over over the years just recognizing cycles and and worrying about it or not worrying about it I, what yeah what lessons have you learned
2: well number one is never not worry <laughs> because worry keeps you on your toes worry yes. is what forces you to look out And a broader perspective to see what's really happening instead of having tunnel vision and saying, gee, everything's going to be okay. Lessons learned are always to have multiple exit strategies uh, so that, you know, never buy a property that can only perform for you in one certain way and have value because of that one certain way. Like, why buy an industrial building out in the middle of nowhere, which if you lose the tenant, we will never be able to lease to anybody else. Mm -hmm. Um, But we look for uh, office buildings right now. We're very focused on that because we think we can turn them into other uses, like residential, for example. So I think the multiple exit strategy was something that we've honed over time so as not to be locked into any one particular use That would suffer greatly if there was a material change in that demand for that product. So, we're buying, we're not buying many now, but we bought a lot of apartment buildings in the last five years since all these cities have passed ordinances requiring these buildings to be upgraded or removed. So, we've got a huge pile of apartment buildings that we're operating uh, profitably, that we're getting fantastic tax benefits from that will probably tear down at some point in time and build something on it at a higher density uh, that will meet current seismic. So we've inventoried. So during uh, the pandemic, which emptied out some of our um, retail projects, we were thrilled because we were going to reposition them anyway. So instead of having to pay somebody to move, the government shut them down and they moved anyway. So, you know, yeah. took advantage. So, Lessons learned is uh, buy great real estate, understand what gives it value, which most people who don't have the expertise have no way of knowing. And then once you've examined the the real value of the properties, um, always have a plan for alternative ways of continuing to make money.
0: Excellent. All right. Are you concerned at all that we are, I mean, I love what you said about always have some fear. Because that's me, you know, I've, I've been in this industry long enough to know that anything can happen and there's surprises around the corner. And anytime you get a little too cocky, you're going to get humbled. Um, so you should be aware of that. Uh, and and sometimes I get flack from our employees. Like, Ah, oh, you're always, you know, looking at, you know, coming from. Don't fear. be so
2: negative, right? Don't
0: be so negative. But it's like, hey, you know, that's, we, we have to. We have to look at it from every angle. And if you can't uh, answer the questions that I have concerns about, then we have homework to do. Uh, but, no, I, I love that. But do you have any concerns now, like you said, uh, the stock market has, <laughs> wow, over the last 10 years, It's or 12 years, it's uh, it's certainly at all-time highs, and in um, real estate, too. So do you see a potential correction coming, or did we just have it?
2: Yeah, I mean, a, a, a general correction in the economy or the stock market or real estate or what.
0: Yeah, uh, let's go with all of them. Well... <laughs>
2: When you print a lot of money the way that we've printed money recklessly, um, well, recklessly in one sense, and importantly, in the early stage of the pandemic, to be able to float enough capital out there so that the world would not stop functioning during, you know, essentially a worldwide health crisis. But there's a tremendous amount of capital that's been created, and that money has to go somewhere. So it's going into either hard assets or it's going into stocks or bonds or ETFs or cash. And so the cash had to go somewhere. So in a sense, the general rise in, in values is not unexpected because we've created more currency and that currency has to be deployed into something. So, you know, the, the rise is not unexpected. So that doesn't concern me as much as the world's addiction to the low cost of money. Mm-hmm. The world is addicted, mm-hmm. And Fed, which has traditionally since the Volcker era, uh, effectively used interest rates as a method for controlling the economy. Um, I don't see the Fed being able to do that anymore, particularly after the introduction of QE and using, you know, Other forms of of managing the economy other than adjusting the cost and availability of money. So, in an addicted world, in a world addicted to low interest rates, I think the real risk is that as the Fed succumbs to pressure to raise rates, to try to reel in pricing, they're going to find very quickly that a lot of products that have been created based upon the low cost of money. Whether these are companies that have been created, or assets that have been purchased, or mergers and acquisitions that have come together utilizing low-cost debt, they're going to find that when you raise the cost of money, these things could implode as they did in 2009. But I do think the Fed has to be constrained because if 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 the Fed raises rates and the other countries don't move along with it in tandem. Um, it's going to create an imbalance where the dollar will become more valuable against other currencies. And this imbalance will then transcend to a general unraveling worldwide again. So I think that's probably what we're looking at. It's very challenging for investors. uh, And most people in the real estate world don't realize, you know, I'm not a single family home person. I, I don't invest in that product, never have but I don't think people, when they buy homes, realize that they don't own anything. People don't buy houses. Banks buy houses. Banks sell houses. The bulk of the money for a real estate purchase in single family comes from banks. People just have a license to be able to live there as long as they don't miss a payment. But once they miss a payment, the bank reminds them that they own the property and they don't. And so, you know, we had over $9 foreclosed homes in 2009 to 2012. It wasn't that long ago that the government was paying, was giving a $7,500 tax credit to anybody that would buy a first first time home buyer. Yeah. So I think that, you know, when you look at the, the broad landscape, the cost and availability of money is what's driving real estate values. And it's also driving Uh, values of companies that are traded publicly and privately. So if money's not in real estate, the cost of money is generally not as relative as the availability of money Mm -hmm. because you can always adjust values based on the cost of your debt. But if you don't have the money, then the shit hits the fan and the system collapses. So right now, the concern should be more on a liquidity uh, issue rather than a cost issue. If liquidity mm-hmm. disappears from the system as it does as it did in 2009 and in prior years, that is what is a greater concern. As long as I can get the money, I'm willing to pay for it. But if I can't get it, then I, how am I going to pay off that loan? Right. And that's really you know, what it comes down to. The good news is there's a f- tremendous amount of liquidity in the system. Mm-hmm. It's so bad that uh, banks are being forced to give back money to depositors because the Fed doesn't want to have to pay interest on excess deposits uh, on the overnight rate. They're penalizing banks for having too much deposits.
0: There, I just got back from a real estate uh, conference, and it was lined with lenders trying to hand out money. They are really, really trying to lend it out. Uh, what could change that? What, what could... Uh, Decrease the money supply?
2: Well, the money supply, look, it's already out there. What could change lenders is regulation, you know, by, you know, not necessarily raising or lowering the cost of money, but by changing the the way banks are allowed to make loans, like FIREA, which was the uh, legislation, was the bailout legislation in 1990, 1991 when we had the RTC, where the Fed, the government said to banks, you can make as many loans as you want to consumers or businesses, but if you wanna make a real estate loan, you need to hold three times the reserves against that loan. So if you have to hold three times reserves against your loan, you have to up the cost of that loan significantly to cover the fact that you can't use that money to make other loans. So we have regulatory concerns, I think, that could have a tremendous impact we're not going to hear about but those those things get done. And we don't have the best and the brightest always at the helm.
0: We don't. Gosh. Thanks for the uh tip. All right. <laughs> okay, well we are out of time and Larry you've been just uh, so interesting. Um I I know that our investors would be uh would love to hear more about your deals so we'll make sure that's available to them in the show notes. And um, we hope that we can, you know, end up working together somehow in the future. That would that be would amazing. Be
2: fantastic. All right. Thank you so much for uh, the opportunity to speak with you and to speak with your audience as well.
1: And thank you for joining us here on the Real Wealth Show. If you'd like to learn how to invest in cash flow rental properties in the fastest growing metros in the U.S., where it's nearly impossible to find any available inventory. Go to realwealthshow.com and sign up as a member for free. And once you're there, you can set up an appointment with one of our very experienced investment counselors who can help you find the best market and get referrals to property teams who have set aside inventory for our members. Again, you can do that at realwealthshow.com.
0: The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. For more information, go to realwealthshow.com.